welcome back to the Anti-Social Studies Podcast, a place for people who wish they'd stayed awake in high school. Last time we explored decolonization in Asia and Africa. In South Asia, Gandhi inspired leaders around the globe, India split, then Pakistan split, and in Africa, apartheid ended way too late and the continent struggled to find its way under the weight of the European imperial legacy. So now let's try to look at what was going on in the Middle East during the Cold War. I know it's been a little hectic in Latin America, Asia, and Africa, but don't worry. Everything in the Middle East was totally peaceful and chill with absolutely no disputes or disagreements. Well, I mean, unless you count disputes over land or religion, then yeah, there were a lot. But before we get into it, think about the Middle East throughout world history. They've been controlled by Persia, Alexander the Great, the Romans, the Caliphates, the Ottoman Empire, and in the first half of the 20th century, the European Mandate System. The last 60 years have been really the first opportunity that various ethnic and religious groups in the Middle East have had to sort themselves out since like 600 BCE. And they're doing it within borders drawn by Britain. What could go wrong, right? So today we're going back to the 20th century Middle East, or as I like to call it, who knew religion was so important to people? We'll look at Israel, Palestine, Iran, and the roots of modern terrorism. And I'll do my best not to get myself in trouble while doing it. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Act 1. Israel-Palestine. Here we go. Time to make everyone on the planet angry and or confused. So a few disclaimers, I am not an expert on this issue, so if I say something wrong, it's entirely out of ignorance and not out of some deep-seated resentment for one side or the other, so just keep your internet comments to yourself. And also, you should know that my background on this issue is that I've taught it in social studies at a private Islamic school and a public school with a very large Jewish population. So I've been trained to be fairly paranoid about talking about this issue to anyone. I'm going to do my best to stick to the facts and let you decide who's right and who's the infidel. Or even better, hopefully you'll come to the conclusion that neither side is an infidel and both sides do have some legitimate claims to the land and reasons to be upset and mistrustful toward the other side. And that's what makes this conflict the most complex one on the planet. So later on, I'm going to give you the status in the region today and a list of important terms that you should probably know. But first, we're going to hit the highlights of the major conflicts in Israel-Palestine. Although it's really more accurate to call the conflict the Arab-Israeli conflict, because Palestine has been supported by other Arab Muslim nations in the Middle East. All right, a quick rundown. So the Arab-Israeli wars, in a nutshell, are this. The Arab League and Israel have fought a series of wars. The Arab League has been mostly controlled by Egypt, and so Egypt and other nations like Jordan, for example, have fought wars against Israel. Sometimes the Arabs started the wars, sometimes the Israelis started the wars, all times the sides disagreed about who started the wars, and most times Israel has won. So through these series of Arab-Israeli wars, Israel has gained more and more land to where we are today, where the Palestinians' land has basically been shrunk down and kind of conquered from their view, or won from the Israeli view, down to where the Palestinians now just control two small territories, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And we'll come back to those in a second. But 
thanks to U.S. President Jimmy Carter, in the late 1970s, Egypt recognized the right of Israel to exist. They stepped out of their role as kind of the leader of the Arab League in these conflicts. And so since like the 1980s, the Palestinians have taken it more upon themselves to advocate and fight for recognition of their right to control their land and govern this land, and also possibly gain back some of the land that they lost. That's the Arab-Israeli conflict in a nutshell, but let's go into a lot more depth so that you understand it. Or sort of understand it. Like, no one can fully understand this conflict. Also, if you don't want an in-depth look at all of the Arab-Israeli conflicts that have happened over the last half of a century, and you just want to get to what's going on today, you can skip to around the 12-minute mark. You're welcome. So before 1948, the land that is today Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank was all known as Palestine. It represents the holiest land for all three of the Abrahamic religions, but especially Judaism and Islam. Since the pogroms, though, and the mass, or mass violence in Russia and across Europe in the late 1800s, a lot of Jews had started moving to Palestine, and groups known as Zionists had also been pushing for the creation of a Jewish state. You'll remember that Britain had promised both sides, the Arabs and the Israelis, guarantees to the land during World War I, and both sides held them to their promise. So the Arabs revolted against the British mandate in the 1930s, while the Jews rebelled against Palestine just after World War II. In 1948, Israel successfully declared its independence from Palestine and from the British Mandate, and the UN backed Israeli independence as part of their plan to partition Palestine into two states, with international control over the holy city of Jerusalem. The Arabs were not okay with that. From their perspective, this land had been taken away from them. From the Israeli perspective, they'd won it in a civil war. So this conflict led to the first Arab-Israeli war in 1948. Led by Egypt, the Arab League intervened on behalf of the Arab Palestinians to defend them from their perspective, and they fought the Israeli army. By the end of the war, Israel had retained its independence and they'd gained 50% more land than it had before. Egypt gained control of the Gaza Strip and Jordan annexed the rest of the British Mandate. So at that point, Palestinian Arabs no longer had a country and 700,000 Palestinians fled or were forced to leave the new state of Israel. The second Arab-Israeli war is called the Suez Crisis. After President Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal in 1956, remember season two of The Crown, this cut the West off from an incredibly important trade route to Middle Eastern oil, and the British and the French secretly backed an Israeli invasion of Egypt. Even though Egypt's military was unable to defend itself, international pressure from the U.S., Soviet Union, and the United Nations forced the three powers to leave the country. This war is also considered the end of the period of British dominance in world history that began with Elizabeth's defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. Ouch. The third Arab-Israeli war was called the Six-Day War. It was called this because it lasted, yeah, you guessed it, six days. So after the Suez Crisis, Israel had received assurances from Egypt that it would never again close off a thing called the Strait of Tehran to Israeli shipping. But... Lo and behold, 10 years later in 1967, Egypt closed off the Strait of Tehran to Israeli shipping, and they mobilized their forces along the border in anticipation of an Israeli attack. On June 5th, Israel launched a surprise attack on Egyptian airfields, destroying almost all their entire fleet. At the same time, the Israeli army launched an offensive into the Gaza Strip and the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. 
Despite the involvement of the militaries of Jordan and Syria, Israel gained control of the rest of Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights in Syria. The Arab militaries lost over 20,000 troops, while Israel lost 1,000. This Israeli victory humiliated Egypt. Egyptian President Nasser resigned in shame, 300,000 Palestinians fled from the West Bank, and the Israeli military established itself as one of the most powerful in the world. And this was further cemented a few years later when they again beat Egypt and Syria in the Yom Kippur War. Backlash to the war caused Jewish minorities around the Arab world to be killed or forced to flee their country, mainly to Israel and then to Europe. So, in 1979, U.S. President Jimmy Carter helped negotiate the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty as part of his Camp David Accords. So, Egypt finally recognized Israel's right to exist, and both sides agreed to respect each other's territory. This included Israel giving Egypt back the Sinai Peninsula and agreeing to future negotiations over Israeli control of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, where a majority of Palestinians still lived. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat was later assassinated by Islamic extremists because of his recognition of Israel. So this brings me to one of the the main issues. Israel is fighting for freedom and independence, and also just the right to be recognized by all countries around the world. And a lot of Arab Muslim nations just straight up don't recognize Israel's right to exist. They see their kind of takeover of the land as illegal and wrong, and they don't recognize the state of Israel. And so that makes diplomatic relations really hard because if you don't recognize that they are a country, then how do you negotiate with that country? Anyway. By the 1980s, with Egypt officially out of the picture, Israel's main opponent became the PLO, or the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Founded in 1964 with the goal of liberating Palestine through armed struggle, they're seen as a revolutionary force by Palestinians and Arabs and possibly as a terrorist organization by Israel and the United States. Since 1974, they've been given observer status at the UN, meaning they essentially have a voice but not a vote in the General Assembly. And so the PLO is the organization that officially represents Palestinian interests. Although, as we're going to see, their influence has definitely decreased in the last few decades, and a lot of Palestinians don't really see them as their true voice anymore. But officially on the global stage, the PLO is the representation of Palestinian diplomatic interests. The PLO organized a series of uprisings against what they see as the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. These are called intifadas, which means shaking off in Arabic. I guess they listened to a lot of Taylor Swift. I don't know. This is in the 80s. The first one began in 1987 and lasted six years. Over 1,000 Palestinians were killed and tens of thousands were beaten and injured. Israel lost 60 soldiers and 100 civilians in this first intifada. The formal peace process between Israel and Palestinian groups began in the early 1990s, but that doesn't mean violence stopped. In general, it would be impossible to recount every act of violence from each side. Just the Wikipedia page of the timeline of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is massive. This timeline doesn't go into any depth. It's just bullet points listing out every event related to the conflict. But if I had tried to print it out, it would be 35 pages long. The Madrid Conference and the Oslo Accords both established a diplomatic framework for Israeli-PLO relations. So Israel recognized the PLO as the genuine representative of the Palestinian people, while the PLO recognized Israel's right to exist and they rejected violence and terrorism. But that doesn't mean they stopped using violence and terrorism. 
In 2000, a second intifada began that left over 1,000 Israelis dead and thousands more injured. 70% of them were civilians, meaning not in the military. Approximately 3,000 Palestinians were killed during the uprising as well, and it was during this period, the early 2000s, that the Israeli government began building barriers in the West Bank. Israel sees this as a necessary protection against terrorist attacks, while Palestinians call it racial segregation or an apartheid wall. As a result of the Second Intifada, Israel has completely withdrawn from the Gaza Strip, giving Hamas more power in the territory. Multiple other peace attempts have been attempted, especially by President Clinton, but they typically end with little result. The United States has generally taken the lead, but other Arab nations like Saudi Arabia have also thrown their hat in the ring. So what is keeping both sides from coming to a resolution? Well, to oversimplify a lot, both sides want the same thing. They both want control over the Holy Land, specifically Jerusalem. There was an episode of The West Wing where Jed organized an Israeli-Palestinian summit and fast-talking Josh and Wonder Woman C.J. Craig were able to negotiate on almost every other issue, but everything fell apart when they tried to talk about Jerusalem. Also, I may or may not have been just watching The West Wing on repeat since November 2016, but that's neither here nor there. Why do both sides want control of Jerusalem? Well, in Judaism, Jerusalem was the capital of the United Kingdom of Israel under King David, and his son Solomon commissioned the building of the first temple there, also called the Temple Mount. For Christians, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, according to the New Testament, and according to Islam, Muhammad ascended to heaven at the Dome of the Rock in Al-Aqsa Mosque, which just happens to be at the exact same spot as the Temple Mount. Nobody wants another group administering their holiest places, and so they all want some control over the city. So before we get into what the status is today, right now, what are some basic terms that you should know to better understand the news or your Snapchat news story or however you're learning about this conflict? Well, the current prime minister of Israel is Benjamin Netanyahu. His party, the Likud party, is a center right wing or conservative group. He's the first prime minister born in Israel after the creation of the state. And like all Israelis, he served in the military, and then he went on to graduate from MIT. Netanyahu is currently the longest-serving prime minister after Israel's founder, David Ben-Gurion, and he's seen as tough on terrorism, meaning Palestinian groups, and that includes his desire to tighten immigration rules, make it a little more difficult for especially Palestinians to cross borders and enter Israel. He views this as a security measure. Obviously, Palestinians view it differently. The president of Palestine is a guy named Mahmoud Abbas. He and his family became refugees when he was young during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, and after earning a law degree, he's been influential in the PLO since its beginning. He is seen as a little bit more of a moderate, at least compared to Yasser Arafat, who was the president of the PLO until he died. He's renounced terrorism, called for an end to the intifada against Israel, and has tried to create a coalition with Hamas to streamline negotiations, but those have mostly failed. But he and the people around him have often been accused of corruption and of embezzling money meant for the Palestinian state into their own pockets. So he also very recently in the last few years has announced that the Palestinian Authority is no longer bound by the Oslo Accords, the early 1990s peace accords with Israel, claiming that Israel has repeatedly broken their part of the negotiation. So we'll see what happens with that next. The Gaza Strip is a self-governing Palestinian territory along the Mediterranean Sea. It shares a small border with Egypt in the south, but it's basically a really long rectangle that's mostly surrounded by Israel on all other sides. 1.85 million Palestinians 
live on 224 square miles, making it the third most densely populated place in the world. The borders are all closed, and Israel has blockaded the territory by land and by sea, making it very, very difficult to leave the overcrowded area. And this is what Palestinians were protesting when the U.S. was opening its embassy in Jerusalem, but we'll talk about that in a second. Gaza is governed now by a group called Hamas. Hamas is an Islamic fundamentalist organization that was founded in 1987 during the First Intifada. It has a community outreach wing that preaches Sunni Islam and provides social services for the people in Palestine, making it popular with many Palestinians in Gaza. However, it also has a military wing that has committed terrorist acts against Israeli civilians and soldiers, making it an official terrorist organization according to the U.S., Israel, and most of the international community. It's important to note that according to recent polls, a majority of Palestinians in Gaza oppose Hamas's violence and its hostile rhetoric toward Israel. Although Hamas has made it clear that its goal is to liberate Palestine and establish an Islamic state where Israel currently exists, uh-oh, the majority of Palestinians would really prefer a two-state solution at this point that just establishes peace and the right of each group to govern itself. But Hamas is also a political party, and it continues to win the elections in Gaza over the party representing the PLO. Remember, the PLO is the official voice of the Palestinian people in the international community and at the UN. But a lot of Palestinians just feel like they aren't doing enough to respond to what they view as Israeli aggression. And so many people are turning away from the PLO and toward more aggressive groups like Hamas. Hamas now is trying to get recognized as the actual voice of the people in Gaza, but that's really unlikely, considering all the things that they've done. Human Rights Watch has declared that they have continually committed massive human rights abuses and acts of terror. So besides the Gaza Strip, the other main Palestinian region is the West Bank. Although now the West Bank is mostly under Israeli control, or the control of the joint Israeli-Palestinian Authority. So Gaza is sort of independently governed by the Palestinian people. They elect their representatives. Right now they're electing a lot of people from Hamas. The West Bank is a territory where a lot of Palestinians live and they want to be able to govern themselves, but Israel is kind of slowly gaining more control in the territory. The West Bank is landlocked. It's surrounded by Israel, Jordan, and the Dead Sea. And this territory also includes Jerusalem, which is currently controlled entirely by Israel. The main issue in the West Bank is the Israeli occupation. So Israel continues to build settlements in the West Bank, including in East Jerusalem, even though the international community has declared it illegal. From the Israeli perspective, this is necessary to prevent terrorist attacks, but many fear that it's an attempt to eventually annex the West Bank as part of the state of Israel. Okay, so what's the current status of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, in 2013, the United Nations officially declared the Palestinian territories as a sovereign state. This state was made up of Gaza and the West Bank, with East Jerusalem as its capital. This is a really big deal. It's the UN basically officially recognizing that the Palestinians do have a right to govern themselves. They're currently a non-member observer in the UN, and it, but it's recognized as a state by 136 members of the United Nations. This, of course, is mostly symbolic at this point because Israel continues to control a lot of that territory and it's blockading the Gaza Strip, making it difficult for them to trade. And nine UN members voted against the resolution to declare Palestine a state, most notably the United States. 
However, 41 other nations abstained from the vote, like the UK and Germany. So it wasn't as like lopsided a vote as the news made it seem at the time. I think at the time, the news made it look like the only people who voted against Palestine were like the United States, Israel, and the island nation of Palau or something. But there were a lot of nations like the UK and Germany that just kind of stayed out of it. They didn't want to make a decision. As of 2015, historians and observers seem to believe that we're in the midst of a third intifada. It's been named by Israel as the wave of terror or the intifada of the individuals because there's been a lot of individual attacks by mostly Palestinians. The Palestinians call it the haba or the outburst. They claim that this is just like an outpouring of frustration from being kind of hemmed in on all sides by Israel. Most recently, the opening of the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem has created new complications. The Israeli government has recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel since 1980, but the international community has continued to recognize Tel Aviv as the capital to avoid more issues with the Palestinians. So basically, Israel has controlled all of Jerusalem since 1980, and so they've said, this is our capital, deal with it. But the rest of the world has refused to deal with it and has just kept all of their embassies and other diplomatic places in Tel Aviv and internationally has said the capital of Israel is Tel Aviv. That's because they know that if they declare Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, that kind of takes it off the table for future negotiations with the Palestinians. But as early as 1995, the U.S. Congress passed the Jerusalem Embassy Act that required the U.S. Embassy be moved to Jerusalem. But every president has basically like punted the football and postponed the implementation of this order, realizing that it would make peace between Israel and Palestine that much more difficult. Essentially, every president just signs an executive order or something saying, like, we'll deal with this issue in a little bit. But Trump decided to deal with the issue now. And in May of 2018, the U.S. officially opened its embassy in Jerusalem. The move was condemned by all other 14 members of the U.N. Security Council, but it was met with praise by the Israeli government. As Jared and Ivanka cut the ribbon in Jerusalem, Palestinian protesters trying to cross the border fence in Gaza were fired upon. Palestinians had been protesting Israel's blockade of Gaza for months, but the day of the embassy opening became the bloodiest so far, with 58 killed and thousands injured. Currently, Israel is seen by the West as an important ally in the fight against terrorism. Its powerful military and presumed possession of nuclear weapons have been key in the West maintaining a foothold in the Middle East. This is one of the reasons why many in the West, especially in the United States, they refuse to support the Palestinian desire for an, its own independent state. And basically, Palestine wants recognition. They want to be an independent nation state that can fully participate in the international community. They used to want to eradicate Israel and like take back over all of the land. And yes, Hamas still claims to want that. But the vast majority of the Palestinian people just want to be their own country that can like trade with others and do the things that they want. The problem is that Hamas is very loud and other terrorist groups are also very loud. And they're kind of overshadowing what the majority of the people in the area want, which is peace. The other things that Palestine wants is a capital in East Jerusalem, lifting the Israeli embargo on Gaza and removing Israeli settlements from the West Bank. On the other hand, Israel wants security. They want to know that they are safe from the various Islamic governments around them that still refuse to recognize their right to exist. These countries that still say that Israel just is not a state are Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, as well as 31 other mostly Islamic nations. So it's a very real concern for Israel. And this is important because these countries surround Israel. 
So until the Israeli government believes it's safe from outside attack, very little can be done to move forward on the question of Palestine. And one of Israel's most important enemies is our second area of focus for today. Their government has openly stated that it wants to dissolve the Israeli state, and they are currently locked in a proxy war in Syria. Uh-oh. Add to this the fact that they may or may not be trying to develop nuclear weapons, and we've got a hot mess brewing in the Middle East. Act 2, Iran. Quick note before we get started, it's pronounced Iran. It's not a flock of seagulls song, y'all. It's not Iran. So if you remember all the way back to the gunpowder empires, the region that we know as Iran today was the Safavid Empire. They didn't fully get the memo about adapting to new Western technology, but they did enough to keep themselves from being conquered by the Ottomans. And this is important because it means that Iran was independent from Ottoman conquest and thus not a part of the European mandate system after the fall of the Ottoman Empire during World War I. By the early 20th century, Iran had created a constitutional monarchy in which the Shah, or the Iranian king, had to share most of his power with a democratically elected prime minister. Iran was becoming one of the more liberal Western states in the Middle East in the post-war world. And this is partly because they were being heavily influenced by the United States and Britain, who both had a lot of interest in Iran ever since oil was discovered there in 1901. Iran was a democracy, but with the two main Western powers keeping a watchful eye. And then, in 1951, a guy named Mohammad Mossadegh was elected prime minister of Iran. Now, listen to the policies that he proposed and see if you can guess what happened to him. Mossadegh wanted to institute social security, increase taxes on land, and land reform. He also nationalized the Iranian oil industry. Oh no. And the British Anglo-Persian Oil Company, later BP, had built the entire Iranian oil industry, and they were not okay with it being taken away from them. Keep in mind what else is going on at the same time. This is just five years after Britain lost their most important colony, India. The same year that Mohammad Mossadegh was elected, 1951, Jacobo Arbenz was elected president of Guatemala, and he started taking land from the United Fruit Company. And he redistributed it to peasants. China has just turned communist two years earlier, and so for capitalist powers like the U.S. and the U.K., the communist threat felt very imminent. So they sent in the CIA. In 1953, a Western-orchestrated coup funded by British Petroleum, BP Oil, kicked out the democratically elected Mossadegh and strengthened the political power of the Shah, undoing the constitutional reforms of the past few decades— So basically, they went into a democratically elected country because they didn't like the things the guy was saying. Land reform, nationalization. They kicked him out, and they gave back most of the power to the king, creating a more autocratic monarchy. The CIA paid Iranian mobsters to stage pro-Shah protests to make it look as though this was the will of the people. So why did the West support the Shah, or the king of Iran? Well, this Shah was very pro-capitalism. He envisioned Iran as a great civilization, bringing them back to the power and prestige of their ancestral Persian empire. He even adopted the title Shahan Shah, or King of Kings. If you remember, that was the title for Persian emperors like Cyrus the Great. He advanced rapid industrialization, westernizing the economy and the military under the guidance of the U.S. and Britain. He promoted modern reforms like women's suffrage, access to education and healthcare in rural parts of Iran. The sale of state-owned factories, they often sold these to Western businesses, and massive infrastructure projects. 
His aim was to weaken the traditional elites and gain the support of the peasants and the working class. And under these reforms, the Iranian economy skyrocketed, much to the pleasure of Western businesses who also profited off this growth. However, the Shah was also a dictator who used Iran's intelligence agency to eliminate any political rivals. Thousands of perceived political opponents were jailed, the Communist Party was banned, and freedom of speech was restricted. He gradually lost the support of more traditional elements in Iranian society, especially the Islamic clergy and the working class, who opposed his liberal reforms, one of which included his recognition of Israel. So a growing movement to overthrow the Shah consisted of a few different groups. There were those who opposed the influence of the United States in the Iranian government, which was basically at that point just a puppet state. There were leftists who wanted the reforms to go further, considering foreign companies still held enormous control over the Iranian economy. But on the other end of the spectrum, there were also conservative Islamists who opposed the Shah's social reforms that went against the Quran and Sharia law. And even though they all helped overthrow the Shah, it was the latter group, the Islamic fundamentalists, who won out. The Iranian revolution was led by a guy named Ayatollah Khomeini. Ayatollah is the title for a leading Shiite scholar. He was exiled by the Shah's security force in 1964 because he'd become an outspoken critic of the Shah's westernization. His exile in Turkey, Iraq, and France made him a national hero to conservative elements back in Iran, and through radio broadcasts, he encouraged them to overthrow the Shah. By the late 1970s, strikes, protests, and mass demonstrations swept the country, but somehow the Western powers in the country didn't believe that the government would fall. In January 1979, inspired by Khomeini, the Shah was overthrown and he fled to the United States. Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Iran the next month and won the national election in a landslide. He declared a new Islamic Republic in Iran with himself as both the religious and political leader for life. How nice of him. The new Iran would be governed by Sharia law, meaning it would be an Islamic theocracy with all laws based on the Quran. The Ayatollah solidified his power by denouncing Western influence. He referred to the U.S. as the Great Satan. So, yeah, he didn't like us very much. Inspired by the Ayatollah's militant rhetoric, a group of students stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in November of 1979. They were responding to President Jimmy Carter's announcement that he would allow the Shah to enter the U.S. to receive cancer treatment. But it was about more than that. It was also a declaration of a break from Iran's Western influence past and to raise the international profile of the new Islamic Republic and its leader, Ayatollah Khomeini. You've seen Argo, but the militants took more than 60 Americans hostage and they didn't release them for 444 days. They released them just hours after President Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. It was a big screw you to Jimmy Carter. Poor peanut farmer. In the 1980s, Iran's oil-rich western region was invaded by Iraq. Iraqi President Saddam Hussein wanted to reassert Iraqi control over the historic border along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Hello, ancient Mesopotamia. It's all coming together, you guys. Saddam Hussein was also scared of Iran inciting the Shiite majority in Iraq to overthrow him. He was a Sunni. So the war between Iran and Iraq lasted eight years and killed over a million people. In the end, nothing was really accomplished on either side. The few concessions Saddam Hussein gained from Iran, he had to give back just three years later to convince Iran to stay out of the 1991 Gulf War with the United States. But the Iran-Iraq War was very consequential to Cold War politics. Okay, back to Latin America for a second. In 1979, 
the same year that the Islamic Revolution happened in Iran, a Marxist group called the Sandinistas had overthrown the dictator in Nicaragua. President Ronald Reagan began channeling money to a conservative militia group in Nicaragua. They were named the Contras because they were fighting against, or contra in Spanish, the new communist government. However, U.S. public opinion grew negative and Congress passed a law prohibiting the government from funding the Contra militia. That didn't stop Reagan, but he now had to find a covert way to get money that could be sent to the Contras fighting against the communist government in Nicaragua. Okay. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, Shiite terrorist groups loyal to Iran had taken American citizens captive in Lebanon. Now, the U.S. had a stated policy not to negotiate with terrorists and not to aid Iran, which was now acknowledged as a state sponsor of terrorism. However, the head of the U.S. National Security Council sold weapons to Iran in the hopes that the hostages would be released. They weren't, but he kept selling arms to Iran, eventually earning $48 million in secret cash, a portion of which was sent to Nicaragua to illegally fund the Contras. In 1986, the Iran-Contra affair was brought to light, and most of the blame was pinned on Oliver North. He was the guy who oversaw the money transfers, so he was the one kind of overseeing, taking the money from the arms sales in Iran, and then illegally funneling them over to the Contras in Nicaragua. President Reagan and Vice President Bush Sr. both denied any knowledge of the operation. Oh, and fun fact, Oliver North is now the new president of the NRA. But it's fine, because guns don't kill people. Nicaraguan militias armed with weapons financed by the U.S. through the sale of other weapons to state sponsor of terrorism Iran kill people. That's what I've heard, at least. Today, the main issue with Iran is their nuclear program. In 2015, the P5 plus 1, or the U.S., China, Russia, Britain, France, and Germany, brokered a deal with Iran. Iran promised to stop producing enriched uranium, which can be used in nuclear weapons, and the six powers agreed to ease sanctions on the country. Just recently, the U.S. has pulled out of this deal, but only time will tell the impact that this has. Act 3, The Rise of Islamic Terrorism. Okay, before we get started, a quick lesson on terminology, and I'm sorry in advance, these are just pet peeves of mine. So, Islam is the religion and it's a noun. So just like Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism, it's Islam. Muslim is the person who follows that religion when it's used as a noun. So, a person who follows Islam is called a Muslim. Now, there are two adjectives that people always get mixed up, Muslim and Islamic. So when you use Muslim as an adjective, you need to be describing a human being. Islamic, as an adjective, is used to describe everything else. So, for example, my friend is a Muslim and he studies Islamic history, right? History is not like a human being, so you would describe it as Islamic, not Muslim history. Or, when I worked at the Islamic private school, I taught Muslim students, The students were human beings, so I described them as Muslim students, not Islamic students. Anyway, okay, no more grammar, I promise. So Islamic fundamentalism has always been around. We just haven't cared about it that much because it hasn't impacted us. 
It wasn't until we showed direct interest in the Middle East that issues have fully arisen. And I mean, think about it in the course of world history. The Middle East has always just been kind of hanging out, doing its thing, inventing things, inventing algebra, preserving Greco-Roman knowledge. But Alexander the Great conquers it. The Roman Empire expands into it. The Crusades come in and try to reclaim the Holy Land. And now the European Mandate System. And I mean, when you think about it this way, doesn't the Middle East kind of have a point? I mean, from where I'm standing, the Muslims in the Middle East have pretty much left everyone else alone for most of world history, but people from the West just keep coming in and bothering them. Anyway, Islam, by definition, is a relatively fundamental religion. What I mean by that is that the Quran is believed by Muslims to be the literal word of God. So Muslims are not supposed to interpret or debate what's in the Quran because that would be like questioning Allah himself. Now, other Abrahamic religions like Christianity definitely have fundamental branches, but More commonly, most Christians understand the Bible as a generally accepted version of events. I mean, the books are named after the people who wrote them down, as opposed to the Quran, which is believed to be just a word-for-word transcript of the angel Gabriel's revelations to Muhammad. Another really important point, and please hear me on this, is that Islam is just like every other religion. There are Muslims that are all over the spectrum, from way conservative and orthodox to way liberal. I taught in an Islamic school, and I met families who saw the Quran as the literal word of God to be followed as closely as possible, all the way to families who viewed it as a general guideline on how to live your life. They understood that it was written in a very different time. But in general, because of how they view the Quran, Islam does tend to be a more conservative religion than other faiths, a little bit slower to change. The last thing to think about is this, and it's important. The vast majority of Muslims around the world condemn terrorism as completely antithetical to the teachings of the Quran. If you read the Quran, Islam is an inherently peaceful religion. Yes, they allow for violence in defense of your faith. That's what jihad is. But so do Christians. In Christian teaching, this is called the holy war doctrine. The problem is that some Muslims, and you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes here, have hijacked the Quran and they've cherry picked small sections of it to serve their own aspirations for power and land. But the Muslims don't have a single representative who can speak on their behalf like the Catholics do with the Pope, or like Jews do in some cases with Israel. As someone who has met, worked with, and taught many Muslims, I can assure you, they hate these Islamic terrorists more than you do. For one, they're co-opting their faith and creating terrible stereotypes that make it hard for good Muslims to live their lives. But more importantly, the vast majority of people killed by Islamic terrorist groups are other Muslims. Just something to think about. All right, here's one last consideration just for fun. And full disclosure, this is my own theory on religious history, and it has not been corroborated by anyone who knows more than me. But I believe that every religion follows a similar timeline and life as a religion. So if you think about it, Islam is 600 years younger than Christianity. So to understand what's going on in Islam today, let's look at what was going on in the Christian world 600 years ago. The Protestant Reformation was challenging traditional views and causing schisms and disruptions amongst Christians, And then centuries of violent wars across Europe were waged between Protestants and Catholics as rulers tried to determine how their new country should look and what religion they should be. Sound familiar? Even if my timeline theory turns out to be untrue, it's worth remembering that other religions have also had violent and bloody pasts. Even Buddhists have waged war for nirvana's sake. And the last thing to consider, I know I keep saying that, but here's one last thing to consider, is that terrorism is not new. And it's not exclusively associated with Islam. 
Timothy McVeigh, who committed the Oklahoma City bombing, was an American war veteran who was raised Catholic. But today, when most people hear the word terrorism, a radical Muslim immediately comes to mind. So let's explore the roots of that. So like I just said, terrorism is not new. The Sons of Liberty were viewed as a terrorist organization in the eyes of the British for their targeting of British officials before and during the revolution. So Samuel Adams would be seen as a terrorist if the American Revolution had failed. But religious terrorism on a massive scale is relatively new. In 1980, a study of 64 extremist groups around the world showed that only two were religiously motivated. More recently, over half claim religion as their guiding force. So where did these feelings of intense frustration come from? I mean, if you've been listening to the last few episodes, then you should be able to answer this. But briefly, Western oversight in the Middle East since World War I, the creation of national boundaries that didn't reflect identity, the constant interventions by the West throughout the Cold War in the name of containment, and the creation of and support of Israel, to name a few. Many of these terrorist organizations began as nationalist organizations, although they were advocating for Islamic nations. Radical Palestinians began using kidnappings, hijackings, bombings, and shootings to draw attention to their perceived oppression. This culminated in the 1972 Munich Games when the Palestinian group Black September held hostage the 11 members of the Israeli Olympic team in the Athletes' Village. All 11 Israelis were eventually killed as the world watched on television. Also, Sirhan Sirhan, the guy who assassinated Robert Kennedy, was a Palestinian who was upset with Kennedy for aiding Israel in Congress. The Palestinians dominated the scene in the 1970s, and they really laid the groundwork for modern terrorist organizations. They developed an extensive system of support that was linked to the Soviet Union, other Arab states, and traditional criminal organizations. But 1979 was a turning point for Islamic terrorism because of two events. First, the Iranian Revolution established a highly conservative, militant Islamic government with vast wealth that could support terrorist organizations around the world. Meanwhile, in the same year, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan sparked the creation of the Mujahideen. You remember these guys, an assortment of groups all fighting against the communists. And many of these groups became modern terrorist organizations, most notably the Taliban. Across the Middle East, militant fighters were being trained and learning techniques from other groups in the region. Even though typically their goals were much more based in land and political power, Islam united them and caused them to get support from other like-minded Islamic groups or governments. Keep in mind the importance of the Sunni-Shia split. Again, most of the victims of terrorism are other Muslims who don't practice the quote-unquote correct type of Islam, according to the terrorist organization in question. Hezbollah, based out of Lebanon, pioneered new terrorist strategies, most notably the suicide bomber. I mean, this wasn't an entirely new concept, like think about Japanese kamikaze pilots during World War II, but their use on such a wide scale and them targeting civilian victims was new. In 1982, the U.S. Marines were sent to Lebanon to oversee their withdrawal from the Palestinian territory. Less than a year in, two separate suicide attacks killed 58 French soldiers in their barracks and a staggering 241 American soldiers in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. I think that there's a movie coming out about this event uh, sometime this year starring John Hamm, Hubba Hubba. I could be wrong, but it's called Beirut, and it's set in the 1980s, and John Hamm plays some U.S. CIA diplomat guy. So I'm assuming that it's about this event. And sorry if I spoiled the ending, if that is what the movie's about, but I mean, it happened like over 30 years ago, so historians spoil everything. 
Okay, back to serious stuff. In 1988, the Lockerbie bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 killed 259 passengers and crew members, as well as 11 more on the ground. Various different organizations all claimed responsibility for the attack. The Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine was blamed, while the Guardians of the Islamic Revolution in Iran also claimed responsibility. During the investigation, it was found that Libyan intelligence officers had been involved, and many claimed that Muammar Gaddafi himself ordered the attack. Just recently, the family of the convicted bomber, Libyan Abdel Basset al-Megrahi, has asked for a new investigation. Megrahi has always claimed his innocence, but he died of cancer in 2012. The point of all this is that terrorism is the exact opposite of how most people view crime. If a terrible crime happened in my front yard, I would immediately deny it and assert my innocence. But the whole point of terrorism is to gain recognition for your organization's cause and to gain prestige through terror. So often multiple groups claim responsibility when an attack occurs. Since 1991, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, there's been a power vacuum across Asia that has served terrorist organizations well. Afghanistan has emerged as a terrorist training ground thanks to their knowledge gained fighting the Soviets in the 80s, not to mention all the Western weapons and technology the U.S. gave them to help fight communism. Oops. Conflict in Eastern Europe and newly independent African nations especially has created areas of weak government that allow terrorist organizations to recruit members, and they often take advantage of human smuggling or drug trafficking routes to fund their exploits, although some have state sponsors who secretly give them support. Do you remember Kashmir, the region that India and Pakistan both claim is theirs since the partition of India? Well, Pakistani-based terrorist groups have gone to Afghanistan for training and support. And that's why when we eventually found Osama bin Laden, he was in Pakistan. There has for a long time been a connection between Pakistani radicals and the Taliban government in Afghanistan, although the Pakistani government is doing what it can to cut these ties. So speaking of Osama bin Laden, who was he? Osama bin Laden was born in Saudi Arabia around 1958. He grew up privileged because his dad owned a company as a distributor of consumer goods around the Middle East, like cars and Snapple. Yeah, that's right. Snapple fact. Osama bin Laden was the 17th of 52 children born to his father. Talk about a baby daddy. Bin Laden joined the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a transnational Sunni organization that hopes to spread the Quran and Sunni values across the Islamic world. They were founded in Egypt, where they're currently the most influential political party, but they were also popular in other Sunni nations, like Saudi Arabia. Bin Laden became radicalized in college. Again, parents, do not send your children to college. Where he learned from a pan-Islamist scholar who argued that Muslims should rise up in jihad against Western interference and create a single Islamic state. Two quick notes. First, jihad. The original translation of jihad, as it is in the Quran, is a struggle in the way of God. Originally, this was understood as an internal struggle to follow Muhammad's teachings and be a good Muslim, but as the Islamic caliphates expanded and fought wars of conquest, scholars expanded it to mean a holy war in defense of your faith. I mentioned this earlier, but I want to reiterate it just in case. For the vast majority of Muslims, the idea of jihad is a personal struggle. Or if it involves violence, it just means that you are allowed to defend yourself if attacked. But more radical Muslims have looked at the 20th century world, with European mandates and Western oil companies intervening, and they've seen it as an attack by the West on the entire Islamic world. This is how they've justified to themselves and their followers this new idea of jihad as a preemptive attack against those who are enemies of their faith, either real or perceived. 
The second note is about a unified Islamic state. This isn't really a crazy idea if you think about Middle Eastern history. Ever since Islam became a thing in the 600s, the Middle East has been relatively unified under Muhammad, the Umayyad Caliphate, the Abbasid Caliphate, and then the Ottoman Empire. The idea of re-establishing a caliphate that would reunite the Islamic world is portrayed as radical by many in the West, but really makes a lot of sense if you look at the bigger picture of world history. Anyway, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1979, bin Laden traveled to the Pakistani border to join the resistance. He didn't actually fight, but he used his education and connections to recruit young men from around the Middle East and to win financial and moral support for the resistance. He's basically a rich kid that got radicalized in college and then decided that he wanted to support the cause. He didn't want to actually do a lot of the fighting. He just wanted to kind of supervise everyone else and get them to do the fighting for him. How nice. So he did this through an organization he created that was called the Maktab al-Kidamat, or the MAK. They had offices around the world, including in Brooklyn, New York, and Tucson, Arizona. And that seems weird, unless you've seen Breaking Bad. Like, people from Tucson are intense. And with the weather there, you might as well be in eastern Afghanistan, right? In 1988, bin Laden founded Al-Qaeda, which means the base. His idea was to focus on symbolic acts of terror instead of long-lasting wars and military campaigns. That same year, the United States shot down an Iranian civilian passenger airplane that killed all 290 people on board, including 66 children. The U.S. claimed that it mistakenly identified it as a military plane and that it only shot after trying to make contact multiple times. Iran says that the plane was consistently sending signals reserved for civilian airliners. But whatever side you believe, this event and others fueled resentment for the United States and it helped recruitment of new terrorist members across the Middle East. After the end of the war with Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden returned to Saudi Arabia to raise money for his new organization. He was not especially welcomed by the Saudi government, who was relatively pro-West. Bin Laden offered to have al-Qaeda guard the border after Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, but the Saudi government brought in American soldiers instead. It was then that bin Laden vowed that al-Qaeda, not the United States, would one day be, quote, master of the world. He moved to Sudan in Africa and committed his first terrorist attack, bombing a hotel in Yemen that had housed American troops on their way to a peacekeeping mission in Somalia. No Americans died, but two Austrian tourists did. Since the late 1980s, Somalia on the east coast of Africa has been embroiled in a civil war that has led to what political scientists call a failed state. Terrorist organizations have increasingly seen Somalia as an easy place to set up shop and recruit members. Al-Qaeda trained Somali militants who killed 18 American soldiers in Mogadishu in 1993. That's the plot of Black Hawk Down. Al-Qaeda was also linked to the 1993 bombing at the World Trade Center, an attempted assassination of Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak in 1995, the bombing of a U.S. National Guard training center, and a truck bomb that destroyed American military residences, both in Saudi Arabia. So basically, Eastern Africa and Somalia is kind of where bin Laden got his feet wet, and he started to figure out how these terrorist acts would work. In 1996, he moved to Afghanistan, where he could evade the law more easily and gain recruits because the Taliban was in charge of the government there. And his terrorist attacks ramped up. In 1998, simultaneous bombings at U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania caused the death of 224 people and the injury of thousands. In 2000, a small boat loaded with explosives ran into the USS Cole off the coast of Yemen, killing 17 American soldiers. 
All of these acts combined to make Osama bin Laden public enemy number one. A federal grand jury in the U.S. indicted bin Laden, but of course he didn't turn himself in. He was too busy planning the largest terrorist attack on American soil for the following September. We'll talk more about the 9-11 attacks and the war on terror next episode. For now, bin Laden eluded capture for 10 years after the attacks in 2001. Finally, in May 2011, U.S. Navy SEALs captured and killed bin Laden, who was hiding out in Pakistan. In a televised address to the nation, President Obama claimed, justice has been done. Next episode, we'll look at the faces of the 21st century war on terror, some new and some old. But it's important to understand that these terrorist organizations arose in response to the Cold War politics of the 20th century. As we've seen, the Middle East has dominated world history and continuously been one of the massive united empires in almost every era. The last 100 years, people living in the Middle East have experienced the epic decline of the Ottoman Empire, control by European powers, and intervention from the West even after independence. And this is all occurring while each state is trying to figure out its new national identity, which is especially difficult considering a lot of their borders don't make a lot of sense. They mix Sunnis and Shiites, they split up ethnic groups, you name it. So similar to Africa, the perceived chaos in the Middle East right now is, as far as I can tell, temporary. More broadly, across the Third World and the Middle East, Cold War politics came to a head against centuries-old issues relating to land and religion. Latin America tried to assert its own identity, but the United States wasn't having any of it. Southeast Asia fought for its independence from Western imperialism, and the Indian subcontinent broke apart after millennia of forced unity. Africa inherited the legacy of colonial governments with mixed success. In the Middle East, given its first opportunity to determine its own borders and identities since Mesopotamia erupted. Next episode will end this epic saga of world history, at least for now. We'll figure out what the heck has been going on in the world in my own lifetime. Like, what were the 1990s about? Spoiler, nobody knows. How do you win a war on terror? And what is the history that we are currently living through today that someone else will make a podcast about in 50 years? Only time will tell. To be continued. For a transcript of today's episode, check out antisocialstudies.org. Join me next time on Antisocial Studies as we explore the world today, or too soon? And don't forget that if you like what I'm doing, please subscribe to my podcast so you'll know when the next episodes are up. And if you really like what I'm doing, then go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give me a review. Thanks.